Today's reading comes from Isaiah 52 and 53. Um, for those who are not familiar with it, it's, it's a prophecy that was written over 700 years before Jesus, and yet it's so pertinent to his life and death. Uh, it's, in my view, it's one of the most powerful prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's quite a powerful prophecy, so I'm going to try and read it slowly enough that you can take the gravity of it in as I go through. Um, the words should be up on the screen. Yeah, so it's it start Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way through, sorry, yeah, 52, verse 13, all the way to the end of chapter 53, titled The Suffering and Glory of the Servant. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his ex- appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore... I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, 
and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I'm just going to pray for Matt before he brings God's word to us. Father, thank you for the word you put on Matt's heart today. My prayer is really for us that we might listen and look and understand and see in a way that we've never done so before. Please take us to new depths in our relationship with you, Lord. Amen. Well, uh, a really good morning and a warm welcome to you. Um, It's lovely to see you all. Everyone doing okay? Yeah, seeing some nods, some, some thumbs up, that's good. Okay, well, I'm willing to bet a few of you uh, recognise those words that Alex has just read out. They're quite famous, aren't they? Um, they're sometimes referred to as the Gospel of Isaiah, or the Gospel in the Old Testament. Uh, that picture of the suffering servant who heals others is so powerful that it is referenced numerous times throughout the New Testament. It survived that 700-year gap, and is always applied to Jesus. Uh, when it is quoted in the New Testament. Jesus is the servant that Isaiah predicts. But what you might not know about this passage is that it is a special type of poem called an encomium. People like poetry? Mm, Less less hands up, (laughs) Eileen. Great. It's a bit of a tricky word to say, encomium. I might say it wrong a few times. Encomium. We We don't use that word very much anymore. But an encomium is just a poem that praises a person or a thing for being absolutely amazing. Okay? So it can be about a person, it can be about a thing, but it's always a poem of praise. And they tend to have a fairly predictable structure, which Isaiah pretty much follows. There's an introduction to the subject of the poem, which in this case is the servant. right? And next you're supposed to talk about their distinguished ancestry, the long line of kings or heroes that they come from. Then traditionally you go on to summarise their best attributes and their achievements, the things that really make them great, and you compare them favourably to any rivals they have. And finally, an encomium usually has a conclusion which urges its hearers to copy the person or thing being praised. And we can see another example of an encomium in the Bible when Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13. You're all familiar with that passage? You might have heard it read at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind, love keeps no record of wrongs. That's an encomium. Paul says that compared to love, all the prophetic powers, all the gifts of tongues, and even faith are nothing. Love suffers no rivals. And Paul urges his readers to seek love over all other things. So you might be wondering why I'm going on about poetry, especially an ancient form of poetry that we don't use that much. Well, actually, we use encomiums all the time. We just call them different names. So when someone dies, we might listen to a eulogy at their funeral. A family member or close friend will stand up and... um, explain how important the person was to them. They'll maybe talk about the highlights of their life in terms of work or family, and probably say that nobody else could ever take their place. They might even encourage their listeners to learn from the person's life in some way, to live more like them. That's an encomium. 
And likewise, when someone wins a big sporting event or an award at the Oscars or a Nobel Prize, there's often a speech given either by the person themselves or by somebody else on their behalf. And those victory speeches end up looking a lot like encomiums. So in the ancient world, just like today, they're used to celebrate someone either at the end of their life or at a moment of particularly great achievement or victory. But the encomium in our passage is a little bit strange. And Alex has hinted at one reason for it. It's written 700 years before the subject is even born, which is pretty unusual. But the second reason is that it is both a eulogy and a victory speech rolled into one. So Isaiah predicts that the servant's death will somehow also be his greatest moment of triumph. This victory through suffering is what Jesus will be remembered for. So my question for you all this morning is, what do you want to be remembered for? If we were going to be writing an encomium for you, either far in the future after you've passed away or, or now or today, what kind of things would you want people to say about you? What would you want to be remembered for? So maybe just turn to the person next to you and just have a little bit of think about that for a minute or so. Okay. Has anyone got anything they'd like to share? Uh, some ideas about what they might want in their encomium? I can pass the mic around. That I turned up on time. Most. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this one was uh, that she turned up on time most of the time. Which is a good one. Very good one. Anyone else got one? I'll speak for all. I'll speak for all of us. One was she did her best. Yeah. And but uh, then we thought a better one was well, she tried. Well, I, I'll take it to my. She tried. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. The effort. The participation award. That's great. This might surprise you. I don't want to be remembered. Okay, interesting. Seven hundred years back from today, you'd be in the fourteenth century. Yeah. In twenty years' time, who was John Black? No one will remember. I want at my funeral only one thing uh, praise, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ and no other. Thank you. Thanks, John. That's great. You're slightly preempting my. my <laughs> but it's good to see you're, uh, you're ahead of the curve. Well, um, thank you for uh, those of you shared. Um, I've spent some time this week um, thinking about my ideal encomium, so maybe if we could have that up. Okay, I thought, I'd, uh, I thought I'd save a bit of work for whoever ends up doing my eulogy or Oscar acceptance speech. Um, and if it ends up being someone in this room, I don't want you to improvise. This is what I once said. Okay? This is how I want to be remembered. And I've put Mr. Perfect up there, partly because, Colin, I know it's traditional to have Mr. Men. Um, but also, I think he really sums up how I want people to think of me. Never mind that these things may or may not be true. Never mind that at best they're only half the story. They make a really good encomium. They follow the pattern. They celebrate things that the world values, don't they? Appearance, charisma, success. But if we go on to the next slide. Isaiah's encomium for the servant turns everything on its head. Yes, he more or less follows the traditional structure that we'd expect, but that's where the similarities end. The servant is praised for things 
that are not praiseworthy, or at least things that we don't consider praiseworthy. They're the opposite of what we normally value. I wanted people to remember me as handsome, but the servant's appearance will be the opposite of attractive. He will be so abused that he won't even look human anymore. I wanted to be popular and well-liked, but the servant will be treated with contempt. He will grow up in humble circumstances, like a root out of dry ground, that's how Isaiah puts it. He's going to suffer so much that anyone who looks at his life will assume God must hate him because a good person wouldn't be made to suffer like that. And uh, perhaps like our friend here, Mr. Bean, you might be feeling a little bit confused about why anyone would want an encomium like that, why anyone would want to be remembered like the servant was. But then verses 4 to 6 of chapter 53 hit us like a rocket, don't they? Because we suddenly realise that this encomium is not really about the servant. It's about us, each one of us. This is the legacy that we deserve. This is the way that we ought to have been remembered. The servant hasn't been stricken by God because of his own sin, which we might think. He's been stricken because of ours. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. He is remembered in this way so that we don't have to be. Yet it is through these sufferings, not despite them, that the servant achieves everything that he does. He was only able to save us because he was despised, pierced, crushed. And the unfairness of what happened to him, and it it is pretty unfair, it was essential. He had to be innocent and die the death of the guilty so that we, the guilty, could be declared innocent. He had to have his humanity abused so that we could have ours restored. Now, if you've been to many funerals, you know that most eulogies, most enconiums, end with a person's death. Death is the full stop at the end of someone's story, or at least that's how we see it. Whatever glory they achieved, whatever victories they enjoyed, that's done with, finished. But not so for the servant, not so for Jesus Christ. Because Isaiah says that after he's made an offering for sin, the servant shall see his offspring and prolong his days. He will look on all that he has achieved through his suffering and his death, and he'll be satisfied. Well, just think about that for a second. Jesus was denied a normal life. You couldn't call it a satisfying life by any, by any measure. He was cut off in his prime, we think in his 30s roughly. Didn't have any descendants. He was betrayed, insulted, whipped, beaten, spat upon, and finally killed in the most brutal way imaginable. But he looks at us, his offspring, and he says, they were worth it. For them, I would do it all again. Wow. That's how he feels about us. Every one of us. And I wonder if you know that this morning. 
Does it feel that way? If not, hear those words again. Jesus thought you were worth the cross. Even at your lowest ebb, at your worst moment, he still thinks you're worth it. And it's important that we remember Jesus didn't need to be remembered this way. He could have come to earth as a conquering king, not as the illegitimate child of a poor mother. He could have had all the glory and praise and honour he deserved. His encomium could have looked quite a lot more like mine than what we actually have in Isaiah. He could have chosen that if he'd wanted. But if he had, he wouldn't have been able to save us, would he? Instead, he chose to be a servant, and a suffering servant at that. Because he wanted us, all of us. Now, unusually, Isaiah doesn't include a call to be like the servant at the end of his poem of praise. Normally, that's how these things end. But hundreds of years later, Jesus does call us to follow him. He tells us to pick up our crosses and go where he's going. But are we ready to? Because if we're going to follow this suffering servant, uh, we're going to need to change a few things. We're going to need to reassess what's really important to us. I may have to forget about that ridiculous encomium I wrote for myself. Because the ways in which we're remembered after we're gone are likely to change. What people think about us here and now almost certainly will. Jesus warns his disciples, his first disciples, that the world will hate them just as it hated him. So to pick up our cross and follow him might mean that we are despised and rejected by those around us. It might mean the loss of friends, the straining of relationships, the scorn and suspicion of people we love. And what that means is our legacies can no longer be about our achievements, all the great things we accomplished, can no longer be about what good people we were. Instead, we will only be remembered, if we're remembered at all, as John pointed out, for what Christ has done in and through us. And our failures, our struggles, our low points may become more important than our victories. Like the suffering servant, our life may revolve around carrying the burdens, the um, struggles of others, and being poured out for them. And I have to tell you, you're unlikely to be praised for it. You may not even get thanked. You may even be resented or treated unfairly. Jesus certainly was. And many of us, as John said, will not get an encomium written about us. Many of us will be forgotten entirely. And that too is part of the legacy that the servant calls us to. And that's really tough, isn't it? I certainly feel that, because we all want to be remembered, remembered fondly. I certainly do. More than that, I know that I crave the approval and praise of other people in day-to-day life. Okay, I might uh, feel a bit embarrassed if someone does start saying lots of nice things, and I'll probably try to shrug it off and say something that I think sounds humble. Um, But deep down, I know that this quote is as true of me as it is of anyone else. And on one level, I think it's normal to want people to like us. It's normal to to want to hear that what we're doing matters and that we're making a difference. That's just part of being human, I think. 
There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes our need for praise, our need for validation, can become an idol, which means that it's something that's more important than the God we claim to worship. We start to find our identity, our sense of who we are, our sense of self-worth in the opinions of other people, rather than what God thinks of us. And we know what God thinks of us, don't we? Because Jesus went to the cross. That tells us everything we need to know about what God thinks of us. But maybe you can relate to that need for, for praise and approval in your own life. I know that after I preached, I so often worry about whether people liked what I had to say. And I usually measure whether it was a good or a bad sermon based on how many people came and said so afterwards. Right? But my first question should always be really, was God pleased with what I said? Was I faithful to him and his word? And I think we can all apply that to other areas of life, whatever we do nine to five, uh, whatever our ministry might be. The key question for all of us is, are we out to please people and to earn their praise? Or are we out to please God and follow the suffering servant, even if that's unpopular? Jesus never got to see the fruits of his sacrifice until after the resurrection. He had to be despised and mocked and poured out and buried all the while, seemingly having nothing to show for it. And you can bet people around him, his friends, his family, wondered why he bothered. Like so many saviours before him, it seemed he would soon be forgotten. But Isaiah says that the servant shall see and be satisfied. And we know, don't we, that Jesus is alive today, reigning at the Father's side, constantly praised by the church that he created. So his legacy far outstrips any other person to ever live. I don't know if there are any history fans. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte is considered to be one of the great statesmen and military leaders of all time. Um, He conquered almost all of Europe uh, twice um, and introduced sweeping reforms that are still felt in many countries today, France particularly. You might think that a man like Napoleon, who, according to the world's standards, is about as successful as it gets, might look with something like contempt on the suffering servant. Because the servant's life was, by conventional standards, a total failure. So you'd think Napoleon might consider him insignificant. But this is what the mighty emperor of the French had to say about Jesus. Everything in him astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Truly, Isaiah is right when he says that kings will shut their mouths because of him. Now Jesus is remembered. Now he is praised. But only after he was poured out. So my question is, are we ready to sacrifice our love of praise in this life? Our need to be validated, recognised, appreciated. I don't really know what that's going to look like for you. It will be different for each of us. But I encourage you to talk to God about it. Ask him to point to something in your life where this is an issue for you. And if you want to explore it further, uh, come see me afterwards. I'm happy to pray through it with you.
But what I do know is if we're willing to follow this suffering servant, we too will have a lasting legacy that will only become truly visible in the light of the resurrection. We too will one day see the fruits of a life poured out for others, a life of victory gained through suffering. And we too will hear the only praise that ever mattered anyway. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen.